If you would like to earn CPE credit for listening to the show, visit earmarkcpe.com, download the app, take a short quiz, and get your CPE certificate. Now on to the show. From Data Rails, this is FPNA Today. Hello, everyone. Welcome to FPNA Today. I am your host, Paul Barnhurst, aka the FPNA Guy, and you are listening to FPNA Today. FPNA Today is brought to you by DataRails, financial planning and analysis platform for Excel users. Every week, we welcome a leader from the world of financial planning and analysis and discuss some of the biggest stories and challenges in the world of FPNA. We will be providing you with actionable advice about financial planning and analysis. This is going to be your go-to resource for everything FPNA. I'm thrilled to welcome today's guest on the show, Glenn Hopper. Glenn, welcome to the show. Hey, Paul. Thanks for having me. Yeah, super excited to have you. So let me just give a little bit of Glenn's background, and then I'll give him an opportunity to tell us a little bit more about himself. So he comes to us from the Memphis area. He has a master's in finance and business analytics from Harvard. He has worked for a number of different companies, primarily in finance roles, and has served as the CFO for several different companies. And he recently wrote a book called Deep Finance, Corporate Finance in the Information Age. So Glenn, can you tell us a little bit more about your background and you know how you kind of came to be a CFO and write a book about finance? Yeah, sure. So I used to apologize about this. I didn't come to the CFO role in the traditional CPA, public accounting, audit, you know, the, the, the traditional CFO, CFO, CFO uh, path. And um, the more I've been talking about it, the more I've been talking to others, I'd, and, and especially an FB&A audience, I feel like I don't have to apologize for anything here because I came up through, I mean, if we went way back in the Stone Age before I got into finance, I was a journalist in the Navy, which that's the weirdest transition going from Navy journalism to finance. But um, when I got out of the Navy, my first corporate role was I was a product manager. This is in the late 90s, early 2000s. I was a product manager for a uh, tool that built, uh, it was, think of WordPress, uh, but this was back in the late 90s. So, you know, very few out there. So sure. I started in marketing and my product, I always felt like didn't have enough budget dollars. And with my freshly minted MBA, I decided <laughs> that I was going to uh, uh, really push for, you know, let me look at the budget. Let's see if we can find some place for it. So long story short on that, I ended up becoming the budget guy for the sales and marketing group. And then after uh, a few rounds and, and meetings, the COO of the company said, I want that guy. And he brought me out of marketing into operations. So I was the, it was kind of a, a rev ops role. I was the budget guy for the chief operating officer in the company. And from there, I really cut my teeth on FP&A. And this is early 2000 still, business analytics. And so to me, I had the company's first business intelligence group because we were tracking all the metrics, not just the, the financial. And so to me, the analytics and finance function have been joined at the hip for the, the entirety of my career. And but that was, I was in telecom back then and ended up uh, moving to much smaller companies, but I got a bigger title and a lot more responsibility. And that was in maybe about 2007, I took my first CFO role and I've spent the past uh, 15, 16 years going from one startup to another as a CFO. And kind of the, the timing when I come in would be right around the A round or when somebody, if they've bootstrapped, if they're looking to raise money or to, to be acquired or whatever, and they need to go, you know, that startup to scale up phase. And that's when I come in 
to um, help them sort of professionalize their back office and finance operations. Great. I appreciate that. And, you know, funny enough, when you mentioned Navy, that's where I started my career. I was civilian, but I worked for the Navy on a Navy base for four years, if you've heard of China Lake. Okay. Yep. I spent four years out of China Lake. And, you know, another kind of interesting note you mentioned, not many people see finance from, you know, background journalism, the Navy, the guy I have on next week, which is a fractional CFO, my next interview, he uh, started his career with the Navy. He was a nuclear power plant supervisor. And now he's a fractional CFO. So, yeah, <laughs> you know, you do get him occasionally. I mean, what's the chances of the back-to-back interview? So when you said that, it just kind of, you know, stuck out to me of, wow, there's some coincidence there. Love it. But that's a, yeah, definitely a different background. I really like how you talked about how, you know, business and analytics, it's kind of always been together, you know, in finance, right? The finance and analytics side, similar for me and that I have a master of science information management. I started in a report writing and putting in a BI dashboard type role and then switched to FP&A. So I've always been closely tied to the you know, analytics side of the process. So I can appreciate that. So maybe next, can you tell us, you know, why did you decide to write a book? You know, I think it's uh, corporate finance in the information age. So how did that come about? The desire to write, I think, comes from the journalism background. And it's sort of writing is the way that I sort of work through a problem. I mean, yeah, you can, you know, go through and try to come in to a place where you can solve an answer mathematically. But just to, while I'm thinking something, my approach to it is to write. So I've and once a journalist, always a journalist, maybe I can't, I'm compelled to keep writing blog posts and I'm an, a contributor for several different websites. And it's just one, I'm kind of an evangelist for what I do with the automation and data collection and using machine learning and algorithms and, and really combining data science and FP&A together for modeling and for all the analysis that we do and everything. And um, so, you know, for several years, I'd been writing all these blog posts and and articles for various websites about using data science in finance. And I looked back and I thought, this is a lot of content here. It it wouldn't take much to make it a cohesive single unit of work that would capture everything that I've been talking about. So the mission of the book is for people, whether they're new to finance or have been doing it a while, but I was picturing someone who'd been doing finance and accounting in a corporate setting for a long time and very good at that, very much a professional in that area. But we get stuck in the way that we do things. All of us are very good at Excel and we know how to do crazy stuff in Excel. And it's thinking about trying to do things a different way can be intimidating and trying to keep up with the latest accounting changes and what's going on, everything you have to measure there. And then, oh, by the way, learn this new technology. It sounds daunting. And why would I do that when what I've been doing works? So the mission of the book was twofold. One, to make this new technology more accessible, to break it down and just explain it at a base level. And two, to show the power of it. And well, I guess the third part of it is I've got a big section of the book that is how to basically lead a digital transformation from the finance department for an entire company. Okay. So sounds like there's a few things in there, you know, what, what it is, why you should do it, kind of how to think about it, and then how to lead a transformation. Yes. Maybe on, on that part, on the transformation, because we've been hearing digital transformations in finance for a decade now. We hear a lot of them fail. 
kind of what's your take? What advice do you offer to someone in leading a transformation? How do you think about that? So first off, I just said digital transformation, but I've been kind of called on the carpet for that for the exact reason that you said. People are tired of hearing digital transformation. And it goes back, it's more than 10 years because it goes back to think about, you know, the first time that accounting moved to the cloud and we went, you know, so everything is a digital transformation and transformation, it's a one and done. So what I keep meaning to train myself to do is not say digital transformation anymore, to call it digital evolution in that it never stops that we are you know, constantly trying to evolve the company and technology and the advancement of software and hardware that's out there and the, and the capabilities are not going to change. So you can't, so people get mad when they think, okay, we're going to do this and then we're done. It's like, well, that's one step and then we're going to have another step. And then as fast as technology is moving now, we're going to have to do it again. So digital evolution is the new uh, way I'm thinking about it. And the reason for it is if we look back to when I first started my FP&A career, everything was in Excel. I think maybe we brought in an access database early on and we felt super tech focused then because we, we weren't just doing Excel. We, we had, we had a, a, a database. So, but the database, actually, that was sort of my first financial transformation is moving beyond Excel and getting sort of direct access and, and manipulating data in a database instead of uh, just in spreadsheets. And it's uh, and the technology that's come on since then. I mean, I can't think of a single function in accounting and finance and on the corporate side that isn't if not fully automated, made much simpler by just off-the-shelf software out there right now. I mean, everything from expense management to bank reconciliations to full, you know, there's software packages out there now that continuous close. And so if you're not keeping up with the technology, I mean, you're going to get left in the dust. I agree with you. And as I heard someone say, and I really like the way they phrased it is AI isn't going to replace finance, you know, right? There's all this talk about chat GPT, which we'll get to here in a minute. But the way they put it is, Finance people aren't going to be replaced by AI. They're going to be replaced by another finance person that's taking advantage of AI. You know, it goes beyond just AI. AI sometimes gets used as a term for everything in technology. And it's like, no, there's, you know, there's some lines, but it's so true. The technology is getting much better, right? Companies that are not being cutting edge and continuing to evolve, not transform, because like you said, it's an evolutionary process. It's constant. There's always something to improve and ways to bring in technology are going to get left behind, in my opinion. I mean, I think we're seeing it rapidly start to change. And speaking to that, you know, ChatGPT came out here a few months ago. And when I reached out to you to the podcast, you were working on a project there around ChatGPT that you recently released. So could you maybe talk a little bit about that, what it was you were doing, a little bit about that project? Sure. And this is the project was really meant to be a proof of concept because as I evangelize about what we can do with the technology that's out there, it would be a, a true unicorn to find someone who was a knew everything you need to about finance and accounting to work in or run a finance department and could also architect and develop software. So, you know, asking someone to have both of those skills, that's asking a lot. But I think that what's happening is the technology that's out there is making it easier for, I don't want to say completely non-technical because I think we do have an obligation, whether you're in finance, accounting, sales and marketing, whatever department uh, or career path you're in, you've got to keep up with the technology. But the reason for the chat GPT project was I wanted to see if someone with just sort of a base understanding of the underlying technology could use artificial intelligence to, first off, build a tool that would help automate some of FP&A processes. And uh, secondly, 
get to a way where you could use that tool to interact with your your company's financial data. So what I did with the project was I created a fictional company and uh, had three years of financial statements just in a Excel spreadsheets. And uh, my idea with this was I don't want to, on my own, write a single line of code or even like figure out where I'm going to put this or how I'm going to do it. So it's basically, if someone isn't going to write code, how are you going to get these financial statements moved into a database where you can run some automation on them. So opened up ChatGPT, basically outlined with a prompt the project I wanted to do. And uh, I did, well, I did tell it because I'm thinking about the architecture. I said, I want to do it in Google Colab and uh, use uh, SQLite databases. And the reason I picked those were they're both free. For a SQLite database, you can even connect to like a, your Google Drive and, and just put CSVs in there and you know, put your, your database in there. So I, I gave it the parameters and said, now what do I do to get this information out of the CSVs and into a database? And through a series of prompts, you see, you know, I set up the tables, import the data, and then run some basic uh, FP&A on them and do some kind of cool things. And it's really, it's not meant, no one could take the code that uh, ChatGPT and I wrote and, you know, run that in production, but it's in an amazingly few steps where I wrote no code, where ChatGPT wrote all of it, you can see kind of the future of where this is going. And there's a little, right now, it's sort of, I, I compare it to like AOL in the uh, dial-up era. You're watching the sausage be made. You know, I can remember <laughs> back in the day, the screeching modem while you're waiting to connect. And it's, yeah. there's a little bit of, of that uh, going on. You know, this is not for everyone, but it's moving so quickly. I think there's only a matter of time before you're not seeing how the sausage is made. You're giving the prompts and it's doing it all in the background and you're just seeing the finished product. But if you want to be able to capitalize on it, then this was that first shot out there for me to show AI can do all this stuff for you. And it was, it ended up being a fascinating project. And um, I'm probably, I don't know if I'll do another paper on it, but I'll probably keep just pushing this and seeing how far I can take it with ChatGPT writing code and what kind of stuff we can come up with. Yeah, I really, I enjoyed reading it. You know, I, Glenn sent me the article before that came out and I appreciate that as you're getting ready to post it. And I've read through the whole thing this week, you know, in preparation for us chatting and it was really impressive. You know, I know it was Python, a lot of what it used to write that code, you know, is the language that chat GPT, but I was really impressed. You know, a couple of things in there I saw is I know you, uh, you also, you had to do some financial ratios and then at the end you asked, you created a, a simple bot and asked it some natural language questions. So why was that kind of the path you chose of what you wanted, the tasks you wanted ChatGPT to do, like the bot and that? First off, when I started the project, I was envisioning an API with ChatGPT where I would just put all the data into these tables and then have ChatGPT go direct to the tables and answer questions. Now, there may be a pro version or whatever, but on the publicly available version, you couldn't do that. You couldn't just have ChatGPT go look at your databases. But kind of the whole point of the project for me was to have this automated system that could basically be maybe like a junior analyst or whatever. So if the CEO or CRO or anybody else in the company has a question, rather than reaching out to FP&A and asking for a report or whatever, how cool would it be? And I actually, I did a project like this uh, in my book too, using Lex, the, the Amazon uh, language, but it, I had to actually in that load the questions for it to ask so it would know what to answer. So this is, and I wrote the book two years ago. So in two years, the technology that's out there has gone from 
okay, I'm making a chatbot using the Amazon Lex service to now, you know, on the doorstep of just having ChatGPT do this. But the whole idea is, I mean, think about depending on the size of the company and the resources that are out there, when people want reports, depending on how backlogged the report group is and how much the data is democratized, you could have to wait, you know, a day, a week, or, you know, you're stuck in the backlog for some complex report, wait a really long time to get data that's needed for a business to make these data-driven decisions. So my proof of concept there was, can we find a way to automate some of these easier reports. And it's really, it's about data democratization and how, if we've got a, a system that can do this, we're not taking any human resources and can answer these questions. That's to me, the next wave of finance automation. That makes a lot of sense to me, what you said there about, you know, kind of the next wave of finance automation and wanting to demonstrate that you could create a bot where people could go ask questions, use natural language and get responses versus having to wait from a report department or a more senior finance analyst, or whoever it may be. So, you know, question there, how long do you think we are away from having, you know, this in most our tools, getting to that point where you kind of almost have, as you put it, the junior analyst? So I honestly, I think the bones in this project kind of helped prove that in practice for me, not just theory, but I have been saying, I've thought about this at least the, the past couple of years, because I've been in the small and medium enterprise space, under 50 million a year in revenue. And um, sure, in that space, you don't have as much data as the big companies do. You don't have uh, as many resources as the big companies do. And I think that we're on the verge of something like when QuickBooks came out. I mean, it revolution in QuickBooks desktop and then QuickBooks online, it revolutionized yep. accounting for small businesses. Now, if you're one of these large companies right now that has access to an incredible amount of data and teams that can work with it, you can do some amazing things with FP&A and looking at, uh, you know, whether you're forecasting or uh, trying to explain budget variances or whatever, you just have so much more data to work with. I think someone is going to come along and have a product that is basically the QuickBooks of uh, machine learning that brings this capability to the small businesses that otherwise couldn't have it. And I think that there's probably a way that you, once you had enough customers, you could actually, that whoever came up with this software could aggregate data and they could anonymize it and, and all that, but be able to use a broader data set than any single small business would have. Yep. And I really think this is going to be a next wave. And so to answer your question, I think the base technology is there right now, and there's so many people doing so many things with this, uh, the large language models and all the advances that are going on right now. That's just on the chat side, but just in, you know, there's tools out there to, to do drag and drop ML. And if you combine all these, it just takes someone that's going to have, have the focus on doing it for FP&A. And it's, as soon as someone finds that, I think there's going to be an off-the-shelf product that offers this today. And I've seen, and I, I'm not going to, you know, come on and shill for any particular software, but there are components of this in SaaS products that are out there right now. It's a, an arms race, you know, right now. So there's e between existing products and some startup that's really going to nail it. I, I mean, as soon as someone gets the focus on this, we're going to start seeing this on the market. No, I, I totally agree. And I've even seen a few, you know, very small companies that have implemented ChatGPT and some of the things they're doing. So I 100% agree with you. We're seeing it. And they're going to, someone's going to figure out how to package that. And it's going to be in many ways, a game changer around many of those basic tasks that for companies, especially if your data is fairly structured and clean, I mean, it's amazing what you, the answers you can get out of it. I think it's an extra incentive to keep that data clean. 
right? Because you get really messy data and, think, and you don't have good master data and it gets really hard regardless of whether it's AI or a human trying to make good sense of the data. Oh, yeah. And like, you know, 80% of data science is just cleaning the data, you know, so. <laughs> yeah, 60% yeah. of FPNA is cleaning data. If you're an analyst, you spend a lot of time cleaning data. I mean, I worked at a job where I had to do almost all kinds of things in Excel and it was just, uh, you know, doing something like this. I was, as I was looking at your project, I'm like, man, I could have done this all without having to know Python using, you know, the scripts and versus Power Query and a lot of those type of things. So, it, you know, it's exciting to see where the technology is going. You know what it is like. 13 different spreadsheets emailed out to 23 different budget holders. Multiple iterations, version control, errors, back and forth updates. You never really feel in control of the consolidation and collection process. Yep, I've been there. Stop. Breathe. DataRails is the financial planning and analysis platform for Excel users. DataRails takes data from all of your company's disparate sources. No organization is too complex, consolidating everything into one place, secured in the cloud. Now all your data finally talking to each other. Everything is automated back into your report in Excel. Cash flow, FX conversion, Intercompany transactions, now automated and up-to-date. Drill down and variance analysis in seconds. Don't replace Excel, embrace Excel. Turn your Excel into a lean, mean FPNA machine. Find out more at www.datarails.com. If someone was to read your project, what do you hope they take away from it? Like, what's the one thing you want them to walk away with from the project? Yeah, I guess you and I are geeks like this. So you, you said the the paper was interesting and I was fascinated by it. Yeah. For the project as it stands right now, it is, again, a lot of looking at how the sausage is made. Yep. And there's big code blocks in there. So it's, it's 30 pages long, but a lot of that is just the code that ChatGPT generated. Yeah, I will admit I didn't read the code. I skipped those parts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the takeaway for readers of it is if you can endure that, and honestly, the audience we're talking to, this isn't like a broad, we're just talking to anyone who's doing accounting and finance. We're talking to our kind of geeks right here. We're talking to FBNA people who like to get down into the weeds and, you know, do all this stuff. So hopefully, us, you know, some of your listeners would find it interesting as well. And, and also because of the nature of our job and what's out there, uh, you know, there's a lot of your audience will be better coders than I would ever be and just kind of understand the fundamentals of this. But I guess what this I can write a SQL query. It takes so ridiculously long to do it. And it's that's the worst use of my time is to actually be sitting in front of a blinking cursor trying to do that. And I guess the thing that I want people to take away from this is whether it's I've written a SQL query, for some reason it's not working, I can dump that into ChatGPT and it'll QA it and find out where you left the comma out and you know save so much time over what we were doing. But what I really was amazed at um, and it took me several weeks to do the paper, but primarily because ChatGPT was crashing all the time because of such high use. So I'd have to wait for ChatGPT to come up. But what I hope someone would take away from it is that I didn't write a single line of code for that, which means they wouldn't have to. So it's all about sort of prompt engineering in ChatGPT 
And then seeing going from having these three CSVs of financial statements to a, a chat bot at the end that you could ask specific questions of it, without writing a single line of code. I mean, that to me is amazing. And it shows the potential of the future. And I hope it gets people excited about what's out there. And I definitely think it will. And, you know, along those lines, in my last Excel training I did, I brought in ChatGPT and, you know, had it write a number of formulas and showed people, look, it's another resource you can use in addition to Google and addition to Microsoft's help. You just need to be, you know, careful and audit it. Make sure that what it's giving you is right. Because I showed, hey, you know, in these cases, the formulas had some issues and here's why. And, you know, it's that really good reminder that you can use it. You can use it today. There are areas that can help you in your job, but don't just blindly trust it. That is a great, I'm so glad you brought that up. So in, in these generative models, they call the, uh, when, I mean, chat GPT will give you, no matter what it's answering, it will give you with such certainty, this is the base reality. This is the truth of everything. I heard this the other day. They call those hallucinations. So it's when this predictive text model gets it wrong, it's just, it's hallucinating something. And there's, you've seen all the people go out and, uh, you know, hack the prompts and get chat GPT to have an existential crisis. It's, it's amazing what's going on. So that is such a key point with it and whether you're using it to write content or if you're a middle school kid trying to use it to play drug to write a paper for you it's just generative text it's not sentient and when it writes the code as well it's kind of like th these drag and drop machine learning tools like there are things out there that it's amazing you can bring your data in tell it what you're trying to predict on and it'll go do some kind of uh, you know random forest and and come up with these predictions um, but if you don't know what a random forest is or how it works or what model would actually be the best to use, you're putting yourself at risk and you're going to, you know, confidently report on, um, on something that is, is dead wrong. So that's, that is a key point. And you've actually crystallized it better than I did in that it is a tool that's out there to help you. But like in that paper, if something were wrong, if you were just relying on chat GPT to do queries and you didn't have a base understanding of it. It could be querying the wrong thing. You're putting together a report for your board of directors or whatever. It's just like you wouldn't turn over if you're writing text messages, if you've ever done that, where you just completely turn it over to the predictive text to respond and you just sort of follow the trail of what, I mean, that would be the same thing. And we're not there yet at all. It, uh, we're letting, yeah, you know, I've got myself in trouble reins. more than once, not noticing the autocorrect changed the word. And I'm like, Ooh, did I just say that in the text? Yeah. So chat GPT is a great tool to have out there as long as you know what you're doing. And it's a human machine collaboration. And it's like a really cool financial calculator or, or knowing R or something. It's just another really cool tool in your tool belt. That's a really cool way to think of it. Kind of like that financial calculator. When we first got the PC, how much did it simplify our work? I think ChatGPT is a lot like that. Or when we first got a spreadsheet, as you mentioned, QuickBooks, what, what are those moments that have kind of uh, revolutionized the way we work, right? Getting a calculator revolutionized it. Going to a computer, all of a sudden having a spreadsheet, QuickBooks on the accounting side. And now, you know, for finance and other industries, chat GPT and AI in general is going to have ways that it can help revolutionize the way we work if we're, so it's important, like you said, to understand enough to be able to use it. You don't need to be a tech geek. You don't need to write code. I've always been a big fan of people learning basic SQL, learning Excel well. I came from a little of a data background because I did report writing for a while and it's, you know, served me a lot of value. So people need to understand it, but you don't need to be a tech geek. And I think there's a clear difference between the two. Absolutely. Really cool thing is that chasm is getting narrowed more and more by how 
quickly and how far beyond where it started the technology is going. Back to your earlier question. I mean, we're there now. We just need somebody. If you have any young entrepreneurs in your <laughs> your group looking at a startup, I really think that building a tool that focuses on this, the, t- the base technology is there. It's just applying it to what we do. Great. So the kind of question, we've talked quite a bit about technology here and I have one more question along those fronts. So, you know, think out five, 10 years. How do you see the FP&A departments different from today and and beyond just ChatGPT, but technology in general shaping kind of FP&A and finance? I mean, there's a couple of different ways to go on where the the technology is. And I think the two things that I want to look at that I would say are going to be vastly improved are sort of the whole back office system, the software that's out there, how connected the software is and how data moves from one system to another. And once, whether it's a single ERP that's, you know, actually covers everything and all your data lives in that, or if it's multiple systems that are linked together and you have sort of this unique identifier that identifies records and transactions all the way through all these systems and you have more and more data, that's the base that's happening with the data that's available to us. So if you're, maybe your CRM didn't used to speak to your accounting or your project management or your fleet management, whatever your system is that's out there, you have these independent siloed records that are not connected. And so if you're trying to get a true picture of your customers and of the transactions that's going on, it's very difficult. So We've seen over the last decade, certainly, but even back before that, trying to tie the information from these systems together. So as the connection between the systems gets more integrated and the data becomes uh, more cohesive, whether you're doing a data lake or data warehouse or whatever, or you know whatever you're doing to capture this data, when you can identify it from end to end and you have this much more data, the second part of that is the data science component of it. And the more data you have access to from all these systems, then the more predictive you're going to be able to get because you're going to have more correlations and more features to build out these models. So right now, if you don't have access to maybe very early customer data of from the CRM or, or maybe you don't have access to information about when the customer churns and you can't see so building models will get better and then you know the way you build the statistical models and find correlations the more data you have and i I briefly touched on this in the paper like just finding things that are related you know how does the cost of sales relate to the oversimplified year but the cost of sales to inventory levels or to what you know whatever it is but i think the more data you have the better you can train these models. So the the two fronts it's going to go on will be the system integration. And I'm seeing more and more now, we talked about this a little before we went on air, the combination when people are getting finance degrees or MBAs right now, the combination of analytics with that. So we're going to have a more trained group of people that is trained more based on machine learning and the what's out there. So it's going to be these two things moving together and FP&A and automation will increase with it too. But the people who are using the automation, everything will be more informed. So we're going to see some pretty significant changes. And then one last thing I'll say about that is I, I think back to the beginning of my finance career, the amount of data entry that went on and sort of the mindless work that we had to do. And it's if you're entry level finance person, you're doing a boatload of data entry. And I think as this automation increases, that mindless work goes away. And the real value that we give to the organization is this mindful work that we do. And we spend less time, like you said, 60% of FBNA is data cleaning. Well, we spend less time on that and we're adding a real value and, you know, hopefully keep showing more and more how we can drop that uh, cost center moniker that we get stuck with a lot and say, no, here's how we're providing real value to the company. 
that's exciting times because that's where every you know finance person wants to be is really you know in those strategic discussions, being viewed as a value creator, having that seat at the table versus all right, well, I got Delta Air and Delta Airlines over here. Are they the same customer? And how do I make it all work, right? You know, we've all been there, whatever the analogy is, Ford and Ford Inc., right? I could name any big company and you could probably have four different ways. If four only, you're probably doing pretty good. Four or more ways that it's spelled between your different systems. And it's like, how do I get this all to end to end as you talk about really understanding that full life cycle of your customer and what that brings. And so I think you brought a lot of great points there. So I know, you know, you've been a CFO of, a number of different companies. So kind of question there as far as the CFO, when you're looking for somebody in FP&A, you're looking to hire somebody or bring someone in to help with that budgeting and forecasting, what skill sets do you look for today in somebody? It is so much more the analytics now. You know, obviously the importance of understanding the fundamentals of finance, they have to have that. I guess going back to what I just said is I'm seeing more and more the finance comes with the analytics as well. But whether whether or not you're officially, even if someone I'm talking to, if Excel was the only tool they used, but they get the difference between linear regression and polynomial regression, it's just the understanding of the basic math of it. And actually, I didn't realize this when I started in finance, but an understanding of statistics is so key to me because I will say, and I guess all the people I've hired have had a finance background, but if you took a statistician and, you know, gave them the basics of what we're looking for here and whether, you know, in the um, income statement or whatever, and had them apply their statistical knowledge to finance, I mean, to, the, to them, it, 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 the number is the number. And, and to get them started, I'd say a really good statistician could learn the finance side, just like if you're a finance person, you could learn the statistics side as you go. But I think just that having that analytical and mathematical mindset is is really the key part of it. And if someone has that and that foundation, you can almost teach the rest. It's like the Southwest Airlines when they hire, you know, they're hiring for a certain personality type and an understanding. But if you have that foundation, I think you can train on the rest. Agree with the idea of, you know, foundation, whatever that foundation is you're looking for an employee, you can train the rest. You want to get those basics. And I think we talk about statistics I do think there's an opportunity for finance to use that a lot more, and we're starting to see it. In fact, this week I was working on an article that I was writing around Monte Carlo simulation. And, you know, so, right, that's something that isn't used enough. I haven't used that in my career. I learned it in school. And then you get in and it's like, oh, you do some simple weighted probabilities. And it's like, right, why should I wait three scenarios when if I have the right tools, I can look at 10,000 different scenarios and get an expected probability and a lot more information to reduce risk and increase accuracy. Yes. Right? Because that's really what it's about is you're trying to make sure you're best deploying that next dollar of capital and managing the risk because the risk is going to be there regardless, whether you use Monte Carlo statistical or just scenarios or however you build the model. It's really helping you to manage the risk and to be more accurate. At least that's kind of how I think of bringing in, you know, statistical modeling into finance. Would you agree? Is that how you kind of see it? Oh, Absolutely. And I love that you said that because that was actually, I took CS50, uh, the Harvard Computer Science, the David Mallon's uh, course that's, you know, it's on edX and all the free platforms out there now. It's probably the most popular undergrad course at Harvard. And I think one of the most popular uh, online courses, but my final project for that was a Monte Carlo simulation for FPNA. And I loved it. It is amazing. So yeah, instead of doing just your worst case, mid and best case, I mean, 
we're going to do 10,000 of these and see what comes up. And it's pretty amazing out there. And I think having that statistical understanding opens up all these new tools that are out there that you can use to improve forecasting. I agree. Well, I could probably talk all day on the tech stuff with you, but I'm not sure our audience wants me to go that long. So we're going to move into some of our more standard questions here. I have about four or five questions for you, and then we'll let you go. So first one, this is one we ask everybody. I've always been a big believer that failure, as the world classifies it, leads to success. That, you know, failure is a learning opportunity. So can you describe a time you've had a, experienced a failure at work? What did you learn from the failure? Actually, I love this question because my biggest corporate failure is kind of my origin story. A million years ago, when I was in telecom, I was the budget director and I uh, was managing a $150 million budget. And it was me and my procurement guy. And that was it. And we worked like crazy. And uh, it was a lot to do and just no resources to do it. And my procurement guy was great. And he knew more about, you know, procurement process and all, all that than I would probably ever know. But he was very, very old school. And when I say old school, this man kept everything on a paper ledger. He had those big CRT monitors. He had one of those on his desk. It, it never even turned on. He was he had just piles and piles of paper around his, his, his cube. And um, I've worked with a few. <laughs> yeah. So in this era, everything was siloed. I was on the outside. Our controller did not want to give us any access to a system. If we wanted something from him, we'd ask for a report. Someone on his team would get a report to us. It might take 24 hours. It might take two weeks. So we had no real-time visibility into data. And we were coming up at the end of the year. I think our CapEx budget was like 17, 15, $17 million in there. And my procurement guy tracked all the invoices in his paper ledger. And we're coming up towards the end of the year. We were a uh, VC-backed company. We had board meetings come up. We were, you know, really tough times for telecom in the, uh, in the early 2000s. And we knew this yes. board meeting was going to be contentious. And we're coming up towards the end of the year, trying to just really laser in on the budget and on, say, a $15 million budget in November, where there's no time to do anything, we find uh, there was one extra invoice from uh, one of our suppliers that we'd lost track of. It was only $1.5 million and it had been paid. So the finances of it were fine. But when 10% of your budget is off by one invoice that you didn't have any visibility into. I mean, it was this ruined my Thanksgiving that year. Me, the CTO, and a bunch of other people worked like all the way through Thanksgiving weekend trying to figure out how are we going to save face with our, the event. we're about to get killed. We were sure we were all going to be fired. And uh, I was ready to go teach high school by the end of the weekend. I was like, well, my finance career is done. <laughs> you know, I'm going to go uh, just do something different. But we got through it and we, you know, had a really painful board meeting that we had to get through with all that. And it was such a disaster that I, once I came out the other side of it, I realized I'm never going to operate where I don't have full visibility into all the financials and the ability to see all this again. And I'm, nothing is ever happening on paper. We're going to have a slug trail for everything that we do. And we're, anyway, it was the most painful part of my career, but it really, and this would have been, 2004 or so probably, but it really changed the uh, trajectory of my career. And I got the support from some senior management at the time. And I actually, from that, got to build the company's first business intelligence team. I had, uh, you know, back in the day, crystal report writers and everything that came out and we took over the metrics for the whole company. And it really, from then, the things I got out of it were 
visibility, data democratization, and being able to see things from end to end. And uh, that's also where I got my idea that finance, and this is a whole other conversation, so we'll save that for another day, but that finance needs to be the owner of all the KPIs for the company, not just the financial metrics. So. Yeah, we'll save that one given where we're at for another day, but I tend to agree that there's a lot of benefit when you have cross-functional metrics to have them all sit in finance as kind of that owner of them. So I definitely think there's some value there. And you brought back some memories when you said crystal reports. So I, I remember that system as well. But you know, it sounds like it really helped you on your path and helped define your career. So it was a defining moment that you ended up learning a ton from, but I'm sure not fun in the moment. No, it's horrible. Yeah. <laughs> I appreciate you sharing that example. Yeah, not fun at all in the moment. I, I can relate to some of those type of things. So, you know, I think you've talked a little bit about probably kind of the biggest opportunity for FP&A moving forward with the way technology is going. What do you see as the biggest challenge for FP&A moving forward? I think it is, and it's not just for FP&A, it's for all fields. We become specialists and experts in a field, whether it's law, marketing, finance. You become an expert in that, and then because technology is being deployed so much out there right now, the challenge is now we have to become experts or at least have a very sound working knowledge of something that's different than what we do every day. But if we don't keep up with that technology, if you don't kind of get on board and ride the wave of this AI and machine learning and all the transformation that's going on technologically, you're going to get drowned by the wave rather than move forward on it. So I think the challenge is going to be, how do I keep up with whatever the latest uh, you know, accounting rules are on treatment of leases, and at the same time, keep up with whatever the latest technology is that's out there. And it, I, I wish there were an easier way to do it, but I climb into the top of the mountaintop and just preaching to anyone who will listen, you can't ignore this. You have to embrace it dive deep. And um, does that mean maybe you need to go on, uh, if you haven't already, go on Coursera and take a SQL course? Yeah, sorry, it probably does. <laughs> but FP&A guys, we all know that. I mean, I think I am preaching to the choir here, but you know. <laughs> I hear you. So it sounds like, you know, that biggest challenge is just being prepared and riding the wave versus being swallowed by the wave of yeah. what's coming. And I tend to agree with you knowing the basics of SQL. I've always preached that FP&A should at least know the basics. You don't need to be hard code and be able to write big detailed SQL, but be able to understand it well enough that if you need to pull something or review what ChatGPT wrote for you to pull something, being able to do that. So I, I think you and I are on the same page there. I've had that discussion with a number of FP&A people and get different answers. So the next question, this is where we get kind of to the personal question of our interview. What is something unique about you that you can share with our audience? Something we wouldn't find online. I wrote and produced an independent film <laughs> in 2007. It's called The Hanged Man. It's horrible. Like, nah, I don't know. That's not fair. I don't, well, I don't <laughs> it, uh, <laughs> You're not giving it a ringing endorsement. If I see this on Rotten Tomatoes, I'm probably not watching it. It's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll say this. For a first-time filmmaker who went from <laughs> nothing to completed film that was distributed and out there on Netflix for a while, I, I think you can still get the DVD somewhere. I don't; it's not streaming anymore. So, you know, for a student film, it would have been pretty good. But uh, it was, uh, yeah. So it's it's called The Hangman. It's um, about some social misfits who uh, are drawn in by this uh, cult-like leader to a uh, barn in the middle of nowhere, and hijinks happen. And that. <laughs> So that's way off the beaten path for probably uh, most FPNA folks to have done that. But uh, yeah, I can't say that's what I expected. So I appreciate that. That's a first we've had. I like that. 
So now this is one of my favorite questions I ask everybody. You know, our sponsor DataRails is a platform built on Excel. So your favorite Excel formula, feature, kind of function, what's your favorite thing about Excel? I'm kind of running through the laundry list right now thinking about, ooh, index match is cool. (laughs) And really for me though, it's the closest, because I use it so much, is just when you don't have that unique identifier or when you are trying to combine data from different sources. The the thing I use in Excel, and I'm thinking pivot tables. Okay, I'm just going to say VLOOKUP, which was my initial answer I was going to say, because you're taking so much information from different tables and trying to match those and bring them together for the people who can't do that. That's probably the one that I use the most. It's not the sexiest, but it is, I'm using it daily. It's good old faithful and lots of people use it. I totally get it. A good lookup, whether it's VLOOKUP, index match, lookup, XLOOKUP, Power Query, whatever. There's plenty of ways to do a lookup, but it's one of the most valuable things in Excel is to know how to do it. So I can totally understand that one. So next question here, what advice would you offer to someone starting a career in FP&A today? So if you could give them one piece of advice, what would it be? We touched on this earlier, and I think the technology is going to change. So having a, a technology angle is good. But going back to what I said earlier, a good knowledge of statistics is going to go a long way. So beyond just the, the finance and accounting, and that's probably part of most finance curriculum right now. But I, I think pay a lot of attention to it and really think about applying that and building statistical models. And because then it's no matter what the technology is, and if you're going into more of a data science angle with it, having that just sort of basic statistics understanding will dictate what machine learning algorithm you're going to use or how you approach a problem or how you look for features to put the model in correlations and and ways to really hone the model. And it would really be Take statistics seriously. And if you've got some electives, maybe spend them on a couple more of <laughs> statistics. You know, I think you're the first one that's given us a statistics answer. So I like it. I like to get different answers. And I've really enjoyed the time with you here. You know, last question, if somebody wants to be able to get a hold of you, if they'd like to, you know, reach out, what's the best way for them to contact you? I think LinkedIn is probably the best. It's really the only social media I'm active on at all. And uh, yes, I think LinkedIn is probably the best way to get me. Okay. And then if anyone wants to, uh, you know, maybe read your book or see your chat GPT, we'll put those in the notes so people can access that. And, you know, again, just wanted to thank you for being on the show. We've really enjoyed having you. I know I've enjoyed chatting with you and I think our audience will really enjoy this episode. So thank you for your time, Glenn. Thank you, Paul. Really appreciate it.